0: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have. Dr. Joseph Edwardsy with me. He is an associate professor of sociology and van professor of racial justice at Davidson. And he uh, earned his MS and PhD uh, in sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He studies the belonging in all of his research and which he aims to understand how to create an us and a them. Edwardsy tries to understand how we structure our world to benefit the us and penalize them how we ensure the well-being of those who belong and alienate those who do not. Finally, he is very interested in how the them make do and deal with the consequences of not belonging. To say the same thing in sociology uh, sociology jargon, Dr. Edwuzi uses qualitative methods to examine how marginalized populations and urban locales make sense of inequalities in their everyday lives. He investigates how they interpret their social selves and order their relationships, how they create, maintain, and transform social and symbolic boundaries, and how boundaries constrain and enable people's lives. Today, I have Dr. Adwuzi, uh on this episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network, to talk about getting something to eat in Jackson, race, class, and food
1: in the American South. Welcome to the show, Dr. Edwuzi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this show, and so it's a real delight to be here. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with me.
0: So this getting uh this book that you just recently published, getting something to eat in Jackson, is uh is an excellent book and I, I greatly enjoyed reading it. And one of the things that I enjoyed most is how you use food as a lens to get into, um, into the lives of people in Jackson, Mississippi. Could you tell me a bit more about what brought you to uh, to Jackson to do this research?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... So I'm I'm not from the South. I live in I live in the American South now. I live in North Carolina. Um, before I did this project, I had been to the South only a couple of times. I had an uncle who lived in Atlanta, so I visited Atlanta a few times. Um, I knew about the I knew about Mississippi, obviously, uh, but I had never been there. Um, and really, the thing that took me to Mississippi was watching this documentary. So, you know, middle of the winter, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I come home from the library, um, and usually I have a bowl of ice cream in my hand. When I first got to Wisconsin, I was like addicted to the ice cream there. So I'm eating ice cream, and um, I turn my television to BET, and this documentary comes on. The documentary um, was called Dying to Eat in Jackson. And it was making the case that black folks in Jackson, Mississippi today, um, obviously from the, that, from the time and from a lot of research that we knew, were suffering from a lot of different health Uh, problems, anything from um, heart problems with the heart to diabetes to on and on and on, whatever health measure you would find Mississippians at the bottom of it. But what piqued my interest is that it was making the case that the foods that were most culturally meaningful to them were also the foods that were killing them. So people were literally dying to eat. And they made the case as well that the food choices were just based on so so one per, what what people were eating today were just based on what their grandmas were eating and what their grandmothers were eating, and it was this really uncritical regurgitation of sort of like cultural transformations from one generation to the next that I didn't find um, I did not find convincing at all. Um, again, I'd never been to Mississippi, I didn't know anything about Mississippi, but that way of arguing about people's lives was very familiar to me as somebody from the African continent. I'm born and raised in Ghana, West Africa. I was used to um, people telling single stories of where I'm from. And so when I saw that, I'm like, oh, man, look at this. We're doing this again to uh, to another set of Black folks in Jackson, Mississippi. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great for somebody to go down there and actually try to get a sense of what people are eating today? And that person turned out to be me. Um, and so that's what took me to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I mean, I guess one could also say that, um, you know, uh, Mississippi has this mythic sort of uh, um, relationship with race and blackness in the U.S. Right. So uh, part of my interest as a budding cultural sociologist and a budding race scholar was also entering a place that um, was so, you know, significant um had a really large sort of symbolic sig- significance to studying and understanding race in the in the US. So those are some of the reasons that took me down there. Excellent.
0: So um, what was most appealing about Jackson, Mississippi that made it a place worth worth studying?
1: Um, so after you know I counted this documentary, you know, had conversation with my with my advisor, I went down there for a two-week visit just to see what was there when I got there, part of the beautiful thing for me as, a, as an ethnographer is just stories. Not only is the place itself very storied, right? There's a lot of stories. But um, even in the aesthetics of people's day-to-day life, folks just knew how to tell stories. They told beautiful, rich, uh, deep stories about themselves. Um, um, and even in places where there didn't seem to be just driving down the street, you would just see things in your life. There's got to be a story about that. So I get to Jackson, and the downtown Jackson is sort of empty um, after 5 o'clock. There's nobody there. And on the weekends, it's it's sort of like a ghost town at the time. So now we're thinking maybe 2010, 2011. Uh, And so I'm like, what is the story with this? Why is the middle of the city empty? And then you would drive in certain neighborhoods, and it's just rows and rows and rows of abandoned buildings um, and boarded up buildings. So you would think to yourself, wow, what is the story with that? Um, and then, of course, when you sat down to eat at different places, um, the first place that I stopped was a place called Peaches. Um, you go into Peaches and all these sort of famous people had been there and had signed things on the wall. But Peaches is now sort of like going down. You're like, what is the story with that? Down the street from Peaches um, is, is another little sort of restaurant there. Oh, on that same street with with Peaches, I, I'd heard stories that Mega Evers' office was right upstairs. And so I'm like, what is the story? So like, it was just an, a place where just everywhere you turn, they're like, ah, oh, what is this story? What's the story with this? And of course, because it's Mississippi, the stores are, you can't just sort of like grab them. They're not, they're accessible in, 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 in one sense, but they're also deep and rich and historical. And so you if you wanted to tell that story, you had to really be about your business. You would have to get into the archives or do some deep oral history or, and for me, do really deep ethnographic work. And so um, after the two weeks, I was like, I don't even know if it's food that I'm going to write about when I come back to this place. But I know there's a lot of stories to be told about this place. Um, And then once you step back and you think about sociology and ethnographic sort of research that we are most familiar with, you think to yourself, a lot of them obviously set in Chicago and the coasts. But when we, when we think about stories in the American South, there just weren't that many recently published ones, right? There's a deep history of, 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 of writings about the American South and sociology. But there weren't that many new ones. And so that was part of the motivation as well to do to do this project. And when
0: you look at a lot of a rural, sp- rural space, it's difficult to do ethnography in those areas where there's not a lot of people because an ethnographer's job in sociology is to get to know the people and the
1: stories from the mouths of people. Buildings don't tell stories on their own. Absolutely. Except for this is the biggest city in Mississippi. You see what I'm saying? So like this is a it's a it's an urban space, um, um, in a place that's thought of as mostly rural. And so then you think about like, well, what's the what's the character of the city? How is the city? You know what I mean? On and on and on and on. So so it's 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 all those things. I mean, I remember being one time in um, in Jackson and just running into the library at Jackson State University and. Uh, drafted is, this email and sending it to all the graduate students at University of Wisconsin. I'm like, look, whatever y'all doing, come down here because everything that we've been talking about in our classes and in our symposium and all that kind of stuff, you can find deep stories about them here. And Nobody took me up on it. Um, <laughs> because, so so is know. this a
0: call? Is this a call to bring back to life a, a regional studies in sociology,
1: particularly a sociology of the South? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. Um, it is not a call to bring back regional studies of sociology, but it is a call to for people to uh, for us to come back to studying sociology um, 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 sociology in the South. So by that I mean, you know, um, Larry Griffin has this idea of sociology in the South, sociology of the South. Um, there was a moment when, when we wrote about the South, when sociologists wrote about the South, they were also writing about really pressing national problems. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about um, Anna Julia Cooper's work, or you think about Ida B. Wells's writing, or you know Du Bois' classic work. Whenever people were writing about the South, they were also writing about things that were important to the nation. But when Black Americans um, migrated to the North, the, 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 sh- the struggle for full citizenship in the country, they took that with them to New York and Denver or wherever else they went to. Um, and because of that, the South sort of drifted a little bit away from the center of our attention when we're thinking about national problems, because those national problems were also everywhere else in the country. Um, and I think uh, more recently, this sort of alignment, alignment of a sociology of the South and a sociology in the South is coming back. And so you see some of the recent provocative national problems either have its roots in the South or are the results of the organization of Southern life that haven't been resolved. Um, or they're pointing us to new social realities, right? So you think about North Carolina's HB2 um, statute that got us all thinking and talking about uh, uh, the rights of trans, transgender peoples. And then if you, you think about... Georgia and how Georgia was important both for the presidential election and the um, um, and the subsequent runoff. Um, you think about uh, abortion laws, right, in Alabama and Texas. You think about uh, police violence. Obviously, that's happening in Minnesota as well. But conversations about that get us to talk and think about um, the lynchings or other forms of government-sanctioned killings of black people. Even when we think and talk about economic inequality um, and the deepening class divide among Americans, we have to take it all the way back to slavery. We have to take it all back to New Deal policies that were mostly engineered um, by Southern Democrats. So I think we're at another moment where what is happening in the South Yes, it's about the South, the region, but it's also a reflection of what's happening in the country. Um, and so we must understand what's happening in the South as part of understanding what's happening in, in, the, in the country.
0: And do you think that the ethnographic approach is the ideal way of going about learning more about the South, uh, getting deep into uh, into the stories and allowing for maybe even a, socio, a social psychological analysis uh, of the people, and particularly for yours, uh, for your study, studying food consumption of people uh, in the
1: South. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm an ethnographer. That's the, that's sort of like the tool in sociology that I picked up to do the work that I do. And so, and so to the extent that I defend it is, 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 is that it allows me to point to some of the mechanisms that perpetuate inequality. As you, as you mentioned at the top of all of this, I'm really interested in studying belonging and, and, how and why certain people belong in certain spaces and and how we create the world in a way to, to, to support those who belong and penalize those who don't. For those efforts, ethnogra- ethnography is important to me. Um, so when we think about, I think part of your question too is like, how does food help with this? this uh, ethnogra- How does ethnography um help uh, using food to do ethnography. really helped us get to some of this stuff. Um, yes. you know, when we think and talk about food and identity, the popular phrase, you know, you are what you eat always sort of comes up. Right. So like, um, so, you know, I thought to myself, well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to say you are what you eat? And food anthropologist, Claude Fisher has really interesting writings around that. And, um, one way to think about that statement is to think about the omnivore's dilemma, which is that for humans, we essentially can survive on just about whatever, right? That's why you go from um, city to city, state to state, country to country, and people are eating different things. And so they're resolving the omnivore's div- dilemma in different ways. The thing with the omnivore's dilemma is that like there's a ton of freedom in that. You can eat whatever, but there's also a ton of anxiety and danger in that. Um, um, and so the foods that people choose to navigate the dilemma is, for me, the demonstration of the relationship between food and identity. So what you eat on the one, it becomes, you you become what you eat on potentially three different levels. One is that you're ingesting certain types of food that has particular biochemicals that actually physically form who you are, right? We're all, you know, it's about to be the end of the year, At the top of the new year, we're all gonna tell ourselves we're gonna lose weight. And part of the ways we're going to change our physical size is change what it is that we put inside of us. So on the one hand, you are what you eat in that sense. Um yeah, we're the vegan. The story of the vegan you in your uh, in your book, exactly, exactly, right. So, yes. so I talk I talk about that in the book about this this man uh, Charles who is trying to change who he is by uh, changing what it is that he what what he eats. But we see that in a other symbolic ways. So, a second way of, of of us being what we eat is like you. you also inherit the symbolic significance of certain foods. Right here, we can think about something like um, if you red meat being a, uh, associated with masculinity. The third level, which I find most interesting and important for this work, is that the thing that you choose to eat is you, and the way you resolve the omnivores dilemma, is you registering your membership in the group of people who have picked the same types of foods to to navigate the omnivores dilemma, right? So Thanksgiving is coming up. Around my dinner table, I'm a, you sort of I'm from Ghana, my, my partner's from France. Yes, we're going to have turkey because we're in America and we're going to register our membership in American Nest. But I'm also going to have some uh, uh, fried ripe plantains or some peanut soup, which you won't find in many other people's Thanksgiving dinner. But that's my way of registering my membership in my Ghanaian nest, right? And my wife is going to have some French stuff, whatever French stuff she comes up with, right? And that's going to be her way of registering her membership in that. And so at the end of uh, Fisher's writing about this stuff, the question is, if we are what we eat, can we also create ourselves by what it is that we choose to eat? And in this book, what I try try to do is to illustrate how um, Black Americans in the American South, especially middle class and upper middle class Black folks, are choosing certain kinds of food as part of their creating of themselves because there exists there exists with them this deep tension between their race and class. And that's part of the big finding. And it's stuff that we've known for a while. E. Franklin Frazier has been telling us this for, for a long, long time. There's a bunch of other people who study race and class. We've been talking about this. But I think what I try to do in this work is, A, I illustrate it a little bit more clearly and I use food to make that illustration. Um, so, anyway, long-winded answer to to sort of answer that question. But that's that's, and ethnography is, in my opinion, the best way to uh, get to this particular paradox um, of food identity as illustration of the race class tension among differently classed people um, in the same racial group, and that's black folks in Jackson, Mississippi.
0: And then as I read this, I continue to have this tension. Well, which matters more, race or class? And and, I, and, I, and race is most definitely most salient. It's not something that can be hidden, as well as I think class can sometimes be diminished as a result of something else standing out more.
1: Uh, how how yeah, much do you think I mean, the I,
0: racial identity matters here?
1: Yeah, I mean, it mattered a great deal. Insofar so far as all these folks are... Um, um, are Americans, and race matters a great deal for all Americans, even those for, who don't recognize the ways in which it matters to them. Um, and in the American South, in a place like Mississippi, where it's sort of present in all the stories that we tell. Um, um, it's just part and parcel of the grammar of life there. Um, class comes to matter in interesting ways in my work because, again, of this tension that I briefly introduced uh, with, the, with my answer in the last question. Because we presume all Black Americans in a place like Mississippi to be poor, um, those who have been able to finagle the, their ways out of the poverty of Mississippi then have to think about their, their, their racial capital gets diminished as they move up the social economic ladder. And so there's all these conversations like, oh, you're not Black enough, or... Um, oh, you're too bougie now. Or So those conversations happen over and over and over again. And this is not just stuff that I'm finding in my work. Um, a bunch of other researchers also find the same thing. And especially for the other upper middle class, um, I and other scholars find that there's something called a strategic assimilation, which is that even as they, and the upper middle class tend to live further away from poorer black folks. The lower middle class, even though they have achieved certain class status, um, actually live nearer near poorer people than their white counterparts. Um, but this strategic assimilation is that even as the upper middle class enjoys their lives in um, richer, more white neighborhoods and send their kids to um, predominantly white schools um, in richer areas they still have to find a way to nurture their racial identity. And that's what you're saying, because in a place like Mississippi, it doesn't matter how rich you are as a black person. Your race is still going to matter um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's a joyfulness. I think we also often always talk about blackness with this um, sort of, uh, of course, the oppressive nature of blackness is clear, everywhere in America, but there's a joyfulness of being black. Right. And so even though they've made, they've made it right. And they live in different neighborhoods. It doesn't mean they want to stop being black or it doesn't mean that they want to distance themselves from blackness. So they come back to church. They come back uh, into the community. And most importantly, for the stuff that I do uh, uh, for the subject of this book, they come back to food. They come back to eating the very particular kinds of food that nurtures themselves. And so this is part of my way of showing how they create themselves. If they are what they eat, then they're creating themselves um, through their food choices. And I, you know, in in part four of the book, I illustrate that and show how different folks are creating themselves um, through food.
0: And is this maybe a uh, representation of W.E.B. Du Bois' double consciousness where – uh, not only are they black but also of a specific class having multiple identities that require different presentations.
1: Yeah, I think I, I, you know I think in some ways it, it, it definitely is, but in other ways, I actually even think about the idea of, the, of a subaltern identity, which is stuff that you know people use the same thing to talk about um, just different groups of people across the, uh, across the across the world, really. Um, and so part of this the idea is like really belonging in one place. Um, but your belongingness in that place is always questioned by another set of your identities. Um, and you know, Du Bois did this essentially with with blackness, right, which is that the double sight of knowing your blackness, um, but also knowing Americanness, right, and have, being able yes. to go back and forth in between those two things. Um, and this is a classed version of it, but it doesn't quite fit on there um, as as this idea of subaltern identity does? Yes.
0: So food was uh, uh, not just a um, not just a reflection of race or racialization, but it's part of it. Food was your lens to get into the people's uh, doors, into their home, to get to know more about them. But how is this food but one tool to construct, refine, and reconstruct racial boundaries in Jackson, Mississippi, and maybe the South at large? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um... <laughs> So I think food, so part of the difficulty with this work is that I just cut across so many bodies of literature that, um, I, that, to be honest, I'm not an expert in, right. Um, but studying what they're doing, what, how, how, and food is one of those. Like there's a whole food studies literature that I, I sort of step into, but my space really is a cultural sociologist and a race scholar. Um, I'm very much interested in just these ideas of belongingness, um, when you look at um, what Southern Studies write about race and food, very often it's the language of like, "Oh, we can we can see race in food, or food is a reflection of this, and, and uh, uh, food is a reflection of race." Um, and and for me, you know, for us thinking to Omi oh, and Wanat, those kinds of processes of racialization, I come to believe that, you know, food it isn't just a reflection of race. Food is is race. And we can sort of tap into that. Um, um, and my illustration of that is doing this cross-class study of race and food in the in the South. Um, and so I so I think it's it's part, part of it too is that food is viewed as this non-political unifier of people, right? I think sometimes it's like, oh, let's just break bread. And if we just break bread, people will all get along. Or let's just sort of sit and talk about it over a meal. And we come to believe food as the space where if we just all gathered around food, whatever the isms are, whatever the inequalities are, we would sort of get over them. And I just don't, that's not what is illustrated here. I, I didn't see that. I don't see that. And so to the extent that food is part of the uh, process of racialization, we see that in my work, I, I, I break down my food ways into three different things, food availability, food choice, and food consumption. Yes. With food availability, I say that what people find available to them shows the kinds of social structures that they encounter. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, So food availability is encountering the social structures. Food choice is an illustration of how people navigate the social structures that they encounter. And food consumption is what they think about themselves as they're navigating the social structures that they encounter. The structures they encounter, how they navigate them, and how they think about themselves, all of these are racialized processes in America, in the American South. And so to the extent that food availability, food choice, and food consumption is a reflection of these structures, that's the the process or the ways in which food is part of the racialization of people's lives.
0: Excellent. So these are, these are some of the structures that you mentioned, cultural structures, social structures, and economic structures that play into uh, what is available for different people in Jackson. It's not all equal. People can sit around the same table and still have an equality that exists from person to person. Uh, sometimes in class, I talk about, let me bring a pizza pie into the classroom and tell you all to come up and consume it. Some of you would grab two or three pieces, while others would grab one or two. Uh, some of you would eat it with a fork; others would eat it by hand, depending on how you were socialized to carry out those behaviors. So, how did these cultural structures, these social structures, and economic structures play into what was available for people at Jackson?
1: The cultural structures, social structures, and economic structures influence what's available to people in in this manner. Um, what people encounter, what the kinds of foods people encounter, is really is about. It's about how much money people have, right? Um, um, but it's also more than that. It's about where people live. It's about how much time they have. It's about um, how much time they have had to um, encounter different kinds of cuisines, which is, and all these kinds of things are uh, markers of class, but it's also markers of. Uh, of their social histories and their biographies, um, it's about you know if we think about it in a Bordeauxian sense, it's about the development of a of a food habitus that I sort of mentioned in some yeah. places. Um, it's about employment. It's about um, housing. It's about um, healthcare. It's about daycare for their children. So so. What people find available to them isn't an objective measure. So in some ways, this is why I push back a little bit on the literature around food deserts, meaning that if we put pin and address down and then we draw uh, a one mile radius around it, and if we see that they hit a, 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 a grocery store, then that's a, that tells us what kinds of foods are available to them. And I think the ethnographer in me says, we can't quite do that, right? So for instance, young woman named Zanani in the book, I am with her as she's looking for housing for her children. So we're driving around West Jackson looking for a place for for her to move in. And she wants to move because in her in her other apartment that she lived in, somebody had broken in and she was afraid that this this person might have come to harm her and her children. So moving was a priority for her, but this incident really made it, um, um, just sort of make it, made it jump up to her list. So we're driving in this neighborhood and decent looking housing, but even the housing stock around there is interesting. This, in this neighborhood, the people the, the people who live in this neighborhood were, were once white middle-class folks who left, right? A couple of. White, black folks moved in, and so we have the story of um, right. white flight. And then it becomes a black middle class neighborhood. Um, and then decades later, they also leave, right? Because desegregation happens. Now they can live wherever they want, and so they, they take off. And so now the stock of housing is poor, it's now for poorer black folks and for landlords who know that there's a premium on their homes. And so these are not the most taken care of stock of homes in the city of Jackson. So we're driving through all of this. And, you know, the other part about being ethnography is always, you know, even as you're embedded in the details of people's lives, you're also zooming out. It's also a time where rental properties are hard to come by, right? Um, We know that minimum wage has remained essentially the same, while the price of housing has soared a great deal. That goes against Zanani, um, who is underemployed in, at that time. We know that um, because of this, there, we know that there's a huge shortage of homes. Um, there are no counties in this country where there's uh, enough affordable housing for the people who who need them. That goes against Zanani. Zanani has children. We also know that there's a great deal of um, discrimination um, for families with children. That also goes against Zanani. And so we're driving around and she sort of, (laughs) as we're driving around, we're just sort of pointing to places where there are for rent signs. Um, um, And so if she sees them, And knowing the neighborhood, we also know that as as a poor black person, um, she moves a lot. And when she moves, she moves within the same 15 miles or so radius. And so there are a lot of the areas that we're driving around that she knows either because she's she's lived there before or because she um, has friends or family members who live close by there. So if we see a for rent sign... And then we will pull over and she would just look around and think to whether or not she has lived in or around there or know somebody that's lived there. Um, somebody who uh, moves quite a, She'd never been evicted at that time. So she didn't have that kind of marker. But there were moments where maybe she sh- would have left the apartment before she she got it ev- evicted. And so she's also thinking about her her residential record to figure out, yes. if I go to this place, will they give me a, a place to live, right? Right. Um, so that, all of that's in mind. So we're doing this, and then in the end, she chooses to move it to a place that's fairly close by to where her mother lives, um, down the street from her mom, because she's... Um, but the thing with this apartment that she chooses is that the refrigerator wasn't working and the stove wasn't working. Um, this All of the stuff that we know about housing bear directly on how she feeds herself and her children. Right? And that's really, really important. I think sometimes we forget that these the context of people's lives come to matter in these ways. Um, she hopes that she would be able to use her mother's refrigerator and stove to feed herself and her um, uh, her children. That doesn't quite work out because her mom's one-bedroom apartment is also now actually a place where her father had lost her, his job, and so he was also kind of crashing on the couch there, Um Her mother, Miss Deborah, also now had to take care of um, her brother who got sick and so had come back from California, so was also sort of staying there. And so all these little things just come and impinge on her life. And I think when we study food ways or... So this sort of points to food availability. And so what's available to her, um, yes, it's dependent on where she lives. But where she lives is also dependent on all these other things that we at times don't capture, um, what's available to her at then, at that point. Um, yes, it's, is it depends on what's around her, but it's also like, does she have transportation to get there? Um, can she keep the stuff that she buys in her, in her fridge? Um, or does she buy dry goods? So, so I think what an ethnographic approach to all of this does for us is that it puts, we put food in the context of people's lives. Um, and that allows us to see how it actually comes to matter in all these different ways. So that's what I think this project tries to do.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I, I think of Weston Zimmerman and, and doing gender, right? Uh, doing doing food consumption. It's not just something that we eat and put in our bodies. It's a performance
1: that we carry out every day of our life. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that became really, really clear. I mean, it became clear from, um, you know, and, and, book is filled with these kinds of stories, uh, from, from, from people who are homeless to those who are in the, uh, who are living in anguish and in poverty to the lower middle class, to upper middle class. We see it happen, um, at all these different stages, um, um, on the proverbial class ladder. I think this is really important
0: work and I I think that it's going to, um, really make some changes. Uh, hopefully that hopefully it continues to spread through citations and uh, book purchases and all of this other stuff. And, and this great, really, honestly, I enjoyed the book and it's, it's going to appear in some of my work. I, I uh, try to bring all of this together. And it's just really great to have these conversations with, with, with other scholars in the field. So Absolutely. thank you
1: for being here with me today. Absolutely. My, my absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: And, and this is a, uh, this is unfortunately the point in time where, you know, we're, we're out of time, but we have time for one more question. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now?
1: Where, um, where do you go from here? Yeah. Um, um, you know, as, as I've done with my last couple of projects, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm hopping onto yet another different area, but, but again, I think in, in my head, it all is connected, right? So if I study belonging and I study the making and unmaking of symbolic boundaries, Probably the best place to understand that is migration, which is the, which is the epitome of like who belongs here and who doesn't. Um, and so my next project is about Ghanaian migrants. It's, uh, you know, right now I'm calling it coming to America. Um, it's this project about how Ghanaians come to the U S and make a life here. Um, I have three questions in, in that project. Um, What motivates, and these are age old questions, right? Um, But I I guess I would like to think that um, there's, you can ask old questions um, and try to get new answers to them. So the first question is what motivates people to migrate? The second question is what is the process of migration? And then the third one is what's the consequences of migration? And I look at these in some ways across time, uh, and compared to, so what motivates people to migrate? I try to answer that question over time. And the way I do the over time part is, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how I'm approaching my data collection. So I have three pots of data to try to answer these questions. The first one is following my my love for ethnography is a three city ethnography. So for Each of these questions, I'll begin the story in Ghana, West Africa, in Accra, the capital city. Um, And I will spend some time outside of the U.S. embassy, getting to know people who are getting ready to migrate to the U.S. Um, Maybe sort of spend some time with them as they get ready to get on the plane, maybe even get on a plane with them and come to the U.S. So there'll be, you know, 10 or so months of ethnography in Ghana. And then I'll come to Atlanta, Georgia, and the Bronx, New York. And these are two places where a lot of Ghanaian migrants live. And I'll embed myself in their lives as completely as possible to get to know their lives. So that's one set of data. Another set of data is um, oral histories of families. I'll identify about 100 families um, and interview at least uh, four people in each family, two in the U.S., two in Ghana. Um, So... You know, roughly 400 or so oral histories. And then the third set of data is actually a personal one for me. Um, my bro- my, my father had eight siblings, half of them migrated to the US, half stayed in Ghana. And we found out that my grandfather kept every letter that his children wrote to him while they were abroad. And then my grandfather also kept a carbon copy of his response to his children. So we have about 3,000 letters, which are sort of this beautiful conversation back and forth across the Atlantic between my dad and his siblings and my grandfather in Ghana. So these three sets of data allow me to answer the question about motivations, processes, and consequences of migration. A, over time, and always thinking as much about the migrants who come to the US as I think about the people who are left behind, and so that's sort of the wrinkle in all of this that I hope allows us to uh, think about this. And you know, I'm, I'm learning and you know, falling in love with transnational approach to um, thinking about migration. And so, you know, we'll see. At the beginning of all of these projects, you you have your aspirations of what you think you're going to get from them, um, and then once you enter the field. Um, you either get what you want, or you get something totally different. <laughs> so that's so that's that's where I'm headed next. Are you looking at push factor push factors and pull factors,
0: and looking at immigration with an E versus immigration with an I?
1: Yeah. So so you know the push pull factors are going to be in there somewhere. Um, I am and I am sort of really uh, consciously and actively looking at both immigration with an E. And the immigration with an I. The immigration with the E part is going back to Ghana and starting the story of migration in Ghana and trying to think about how that. Um, and the immigration with the I version is being in the U.S. and spending time with people in Atlanta and 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 the Bronx um, to do that. So, so that's that's the approach, and and we'll see. I mean, this is a it w- it's going to be a much longer project than anything I've ever done. Um, yeah, more. It's yeah, it's a more ambitious project than anything I've ever done, and so I think it's going to, um, um, you know, we grow from all these projects, right? I grew so much from read uh, from doing this project in Jackson um, that you know that that beautiful city really taught me a lot about myself. Um, um, the writing process deepened my stamina, my intellectual rigor, um, and I'm hoping that. And I know that if I do this next project well, um, um, it will it will bear the same kind of fruit. And obviously the book that comes out of these things are are the public representations of what you get out of them. But personally, those of us who are privileged to live this life as sociologists, um, uh, uh, we get so much from it and it just forces us to grow so much. Um so so I'm always grateful for starting a new project and excited about a new project. And it's daunting, right? Because, you know, now that you've done it once, you know exactly how hard it is to do it. Um, when I when I moved to Jackson, you you just don't know. You're, you know, right in the high of, you know, being in graduate school and reading a bunch of people and thinking to yourself, man, I could do that. You know what I'm saying? And you just go and you you do the best that you can. But now you know exactly how hard it is. And you also don't have a comfort of an advisor who's a graduate school advisor who's telling you, Oh, make this move, do that, do that. You see what I'm saying? So, so yeah. being sort of doing it on your own. And, you know, I'm past the tenure stage now, so I guess uh, I'm, I'm a little grown in this world, but it never stops being intimidating. It never stops being um, difficult and, You know, I'm sure anybody else who does anything, people who are making new albums or people who are making new films or people who are doing whatever other kind of creative productions, I'm sure it's always nervous. And I think that's part of the excitement of of what we get to do.
0: And then the stories that you're telling is not only a gift to yourself for the growth that comes out of it, but also a gift for the people who would otherwise not have a voice.
1: That's right, that's right. I I mean, I can't tell you how important that is, right? So um, uh, two weeks ago, um, I started getting text messages from the people who are in the book that they had received your copies of the book. And of course, everybody would sort of go into the table of contents, find their name and go to the section <laughs> and just re- and read their part. And, and, uh, you know, beyond reviews or anything like that, when people write to you and they say, Hey, I really, I really appreciate this. Um, uh, the way, the way you did this worked for me, um, Actually, you know what I'll do? Charles in the book writes to me um, and he says, I got the book a few days ago. I sat there with it for a day contemplating on reading the section on me. My wife saw the cover and asked me about it. We talked a while and I jumped right into my chapter. I was blown away. Hearing someone's assessment of your journey and this life rocked my soul. You rocked me, man. I'm going to read the book in its entirety during the holiday break. Your way of telling the story is phenomenal. I'm a fan and proud to say you're my friend. Um, so it's just that right there, more than anything, uh, for me is 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 knowing that you've gotten something right. Um and and I've been I've been pleased enough to to get some of those from the folks in the book. So you're absolutely right. The people, the pe- that's what I hung my hat on. The people in the book and getting a chance to tell their stories and feeling like you have got something right. That for me is the it's one of the gifts of 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 doing this kind of work.
0: And the next cool thing with this new study that you're working on and going to go over to Ghana, you're going to be crossing language ba- boundaries, language barriers.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I was born and raised in Ghana. So um, Ghana is a British colony, so the English is there. Um, but the local language is going to be good. And, you know, I, I moved to the U.S. when I was 13. And, you know, thanks to my father and my, my folks who kept speaking to me, my local language, my, my, my own language is intact. So it's going to be that's the other thing. Like So. So even though a place like Mississippi, it's, it's obviously all English, but there's a beautiful intonations to, to the language itself. So what folks do with language in here uh, uh, in this work is amazing. Right. So. So even in, in the in getting something to eat in Jackson, there's so many times where there are long quotes and that's that wasn't me being lazy and not trying to like <laughs> write my own. But it's just that the language <laughs> that they were using was so beautiful. That I have to cut anything out. Exactly, I can't (laughs) cut it. I can't do anything. Um, So I mean, there's 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 a moment in there where this person who is homeless is just telling me about their life, and and they say something like this. They say, "I feel like my life. I would never forget. I would never forget this." They said, "I feel like my life is a basketball game, and I have fouled out." And so now I have to just sit and watch the game come to an end. Uh, I mean, like, there's no no creative. You can't make this stuff up. Uh-huh. You can't come up with this stuff, right? Um, and so it's just beautiful, beautiful language in that sense. And that's one of the one of the things that I I really enjoyed most about um, doing this project in Mississippi. And so I, I, turning now back home to Ghana and doing this project in a place that's home for me. And hearing people, it's going to be great hearing people sort of really describe themselves and talk about themselves in a, lo- in a very localized language, in a local way that I understand, that I can sort of transcribe. And, and that's going to be interesting. And as you mentioned, there's a bunch of these folks that um, the privilege that we have as ethnographers is that we get to make their life stories part of the written public record of this time and, and history in the world. Right. So, so as I'm very nervous about it, cause it's a ton of work. Um, I'm nervous about it cause it's really personal work as well. Um, but I'm excited about it because, you know, we don't know what's going to come out of it and, um, 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 you know, whatever comes out of it comes out of it. But, but, yeah. um, uh, I, I know that we're going to, I'm going to get some really, really cool stories, um, which I'm looking forward yeah. to.
0: I look forward to having you back on the show. I know it won't be a year from today. It'll probably be like two or three years of data oh, collection gonna, and then making yes, sense yeah, of yeah. it.
1: Yeah, yeah, It's going to be like a <laughs> two or three years. This is going, I mean, you know, the other thing about this being an ambitious project, too, is that it's going to take longer. It's going to take time, right? Um, you know, five, six, seven years um, to eight years, I don't know, to, to sit and write. But a- again, being grateful in a different stage of life. I'm not doing this to graduate. And I'm not doing I'm not doing this at the stage to try to get um, any promotion or anything from work either. Right. Um, and because of that, and I really do mean this is, you know, um, the blessing and the luxury of of what we get to do for a living. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I'm excited about it. And it makes us better teachers, I think, you know, doing, research while, being, doing research while teaching. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you and I are, are, are folks who are in the classroom, right? Um, um, spend a lot of time teaching, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, it makes us better better teachers. It makes us uh, uh, think harder about how do we – it's not just the transmission of, of knowledge and getting people to learn different terms, but it's also really getting our students to reorient themselves and how they think about the world. Um, so you're absolutely right. That's that's something that is really really important for 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 us, right? Um, and we, I mean, I do think we have the best of both worlds. I know the the R one folks are sometimes teaching is not the most important thing, but I think we we get to do both of those things, and obviously, it takes up a lot of our time, but um, it's 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 part of it. Well, thank
0: you again, Doctor Alwazi, for being on the show today. This is uh, another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Thank you so
1: much. This is a great joy.